Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to this installment of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Greg Marshallin, and today we are going to talk to Steve Schwinghammer about his co-authored book on Pier 21, the main gateway for immigrants to Canada between 1928 and 1971. Steve is an historian based at the Canadian Museum of Immigration at Pier 21 in Halifax, Nova Scotia. He's responsible for historical research in the Exhibitions, Research, and Collections Department of the Museum. Steve is also an affiliate of the Center for Oral History and Digital Storytelling at Concordia University, as well as the Gorsbrook Research Institute at St. Mary's University in Halifax. Steve, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a real pleasure. Thank you for the invitation. Well, uh, since not enough Canadians, uh, including myself, have really had the opportunity to visit the Canadian Museum of Immigration at Pier 21 in Halifax, can you give us a quick verbal tour of the museum as a way of introducing us to your book? The first thing that I would have you picture is that it really is a waterfront shed. It's, uh, It's... One side of the building is pressed right up against the uh, the brow side, the water of the Halifax Harbor, uh, and the other side fronts onto railway tracks. And uh, this position, you know, right at the junction of uh, the transportation network between sea and land, um, was the essential ingredient for so many of Canada's ocean immigration sheds. But it's described as a shed. You know, it, it was a simple building. Um, the front entrance to the museum uh, is actually not part of what historic Pier 21 was, but in between 
uh, long uh, cargo sheds, two stories high, and long, they're 500 feet long or so. Um, there's sort of a brick central bay uh, with windows uh, as part of the facade, and that's where the entrance to the museum is. And then to the left of that entrance as you go in, on the second floor of this long uh, shed, that's where historic Pier 21 was, the immigration facility on the second floor, uh, occupying all of that 500-foot-long, almost 100-foot-wide shed. And then there are walkways, historically, there's only one left, that go over to a smaller shed building just inland from it, which was for customs um, back when the site was operating. And so, if you will, the waterside building was for... Uh, the immigration department and dealing with the people. And then the land side building was for, you know, once the people had been admitted, helping them deal with their stuff. Uh, and that's sort of broadly the, the layout of the, the exterior of the space. Now the museum of its, itself, uh, when you go in the doors, there's uh, to your right, uh, the Scotiabank family history center. It's a genealogical research center that's staffed with, uh, genealogical researchers whose expertise is freely available to the public, uh, including by email if people are interested and want to reach out to the museum for a little help looking into uh, family histories of, of immigration. And then we have our gift shop and we have our temporary exhibit gallery and, of course, a cafe. Uh, the permanent exhibitions of the museum happen, again, on that second floor. Uh, one gallery is devoted to the history of Pier 21, which is a national historic site and our, our place, you know, uh, kind of our located authority as, a, as a, a heritage institution. And then the other gallery deals with the Canadian immigration story more broadly. Uh, and those two galleries, when you get onto the second floor, you sort of choose left or right and go to one or the other. Steve, thanks so much for that uh, guided tour. Um through the podcast, of course, you're our witness to yesterday today. So I want you to take us back and describe what the typical immigrant would go through after arriving by ship at Pier 21. Pick your time. <laughs> well, I guess sort of two introductory comments there to this question. The first is um, a big part of the story of Pier 21 is how much people had done before they even got here. Uh, and the second comment is one of the important parts of the story of this site, even though it operated from 1928 to 1971, is how little changed for people's experiences of the site um, and the, the facilities they would go through on their way from the ship to joining their train to travel inland. So the experience of an immigrant as they arrive at the site, uh, as I say, a, a big piece of this has to do with how much preparation they had to do. So someone disembarks from an ocean liner, and usually they would disembark uh, via a gangway directly onto the second floor. And they would come in, and they'd wait in an assembly area, a very large space. Um, when the site opened, uh, that space could hold almost a 1,000 people. Uh, even after renovations that shrunk it a, a bit, you're still talking about hundreds of people at a time able to wait and they would do two things there. Uh, they would go through a medical check, and they'd go through the immigration examination. But these examinations follow 
preparations generally done overseas. So for the medical, usually an immigrant would have uh, visited with a roster doctor affiliated to you know, the, the consulate or embassy where they were uh, beginning the process to immigrate. Um, and so when they come here to do their medical exam, it, it's not a matter of sort of, you know, finally doing the x-rays or, or having, you know, really thorough physical done. Um, generally, it was a matter of the, uh, the doctors who were uh, employees of the Department of Health rather than of immigration. They, they sort of look and say, you know, oh, you have your x-rays, you have your vaccination card, you have a stamp from a medical inspection abroad, and they would do a cursory check, but if a person appeared to be in good health and there was no indication of sickness from, you know, during their voyage, the ship's doctor or something, then there was really um, no further examination needed. They would pass their medical and, and carry on because they'd done the difficult part overseas. Mm -hmm. uh, after the medical, and it's important to, to always remember that, you know, these, these medical measures have always been the leading part of our immigration protections, um, you know, after we, we've uh, set up uh, overseas immigration screening, um, you know, whether it's a quarantine for the vessel more broadly or the individual check, those precede, you know, passing through immigration inspection. And the immigration check, um, you know, there's there's sort of broader paperwork submitted by uh, the ship's crew, uh, a long form of manifest uh, with details about the passengers. Um, but the passengers themselves are, are carrying paperwork that verifies, you know, oh, I, I did an interview with Canadian officials abroad. Um, you know, I've prepared for employment in Moose Jaw or wherever they're going. Uh, and so it's not sort of, you know, my name is, you know, John, and I'm here to immigrate to Canada. It's more, here is all the work I've already done over months to be acceptable as an immigrant to enter. Uh, and so when we think of Pier 21 and the process here, it certainly was a border point of entry. But the Canadian border is an awfully elastic thing in time and space. Um, and our border could stretch to, you know, nine months before their arrival here to an office in Port of Spain or, or Vienna or, uh, you know, wherever the, the person was coming from. Uh, and it would extend with the immigrant inland, too, until they, they naturalized or became a citizen. So that's a, a really important uh, predicate for sort of understanding their experience here. This isn't their first touch with Canadian immigration. This is a validation of the process. After they go through this, and the vast majority of people have passed all this screening abroad. So the refusal rate here um, in terms of trouble, whether detention or, or denial or deportation, was quite low. That was done deliberately, uh, and the processes that made that possible had been in place from prior to Pier 21's opening. This was standard in the Canadian Immigration Service. Um, it's described as a way to reduce the inconvenience to shipping companies and immigrants uh, in terms of having people who are inadmissible be brought to the country and then have to be turned away. So they do all this screening abroad, but it has another effect uh, for us in terms of our, our myth-making and the way we think about um, our past as a, a country that accepted immigrants. The vast majority of our refusal 
and a, a huge proportion of the problems that people experienced with Canadian immigration happen out of sight of sort of Canada as a, a geographic place and Canadians as a population. You know, refusal happens somewhere else. People are turned away somewhere else. Um, and so we can look at, you know, this historic site where we placed our National Museum of Immigration and say, oh, very few people were turned away here. Um, well, yes, that's true. And that's because when they went into the office, you know, um, perhaps in London or, again, perhaps in Vienna or maybe Naples or Rome, um, they were turned away there, you know, uh, and that unfortunately reinforces um, some of the more comfortable storytelling we have about uh, the open doors and the accessibility of Canadian immigration. Right, and the experience at Pier 21. Steve, can you tell us what motivated you and your co-author, Jan Roski, to put it all together in a book? The, the book is a, a, a follow-up to a, a large project of the museum to update our permanent exhibit galleries. Um, we became a, a part of the, the family of national museums in, in 2010, 2011. Uh, and as part of moving into that role, we updated the, the permanent exhibits here through 2014 and 2015. And updating the Pier 21 exhibit, um, you know, Jan and I, produced a lot of, of uh, work in connection with that. And uh, our re research reports, we, we sort of joked in the research team that we'd uh, pretty much written the book. And the manager of research, um, Monica McDonald, who has championed and, and led and, and steered through this project, um, actually kind of took hold of that and said, well, why not? Why, why don't we see about running with the book? Um, and taking this idea, um, you know, it was picked up by an enthusiastic colleague of ours at the Museum of History, who has a, a museum publishing agreement with uh, the University of Ottawa Press. And so the book sort of found a, an avenue to become a reality uh, from being a, a research project at the museum. But we were very fortunate uh, with it being a project of the, of the museum because by that time, we'd had, you know, 15 years as an institution of gathering oral histories and receiving written stories from people who had connections to the site and, you know, uh, slowly growing our collection of digital and, and material artifacts and so on. Uh, and so this book really benefits from uh, not only sort of the immediate project of working on updating our, our gallery that interprets our National Historic Site, um, but also, you know, the, the institutional efforts, um, and I would really single out the oral history project um, that the museum had been doing for a long time. Uh, and so it was a delight to um, be able to move from research reports in a gallery to, you know, um, translating it into a book. Well, I must say I was very impressed with the depth of your research. So I'd like you to give us some insight into some of the more interesting or unique primary sources that you relied upon in writing this book. Thank you. First of all, that's very kind uh, of you to say. Um, early on, uh, even before uh, Pier 21 opened as a private nonprofit um, 
Jim Morrison uh, at St. Mary's University championed the uh, the creation of an oral history project. Uh, I initially joined the museum to work with that oral history project, but that project provided a great deal of the information that we use to understand people's experiences, whether staff or volunteers or immigrants or refugees or veterans. Um, you know, a great deal of the material in the book uh, comes from uh, the interviews that, that grew from that project. And, and so, you know, Jan and I both, we have sort of favorite oral histories and favorite interviews um, that contributed to the chapters we worked on. And, and so I point to that. Um, the written sources, you know, there are a lot of people who have been very generous with their time um, putting together a, a written story of the family experience of, of coming to Canada through Pier 21. And we gather all manner of immigration stories now, consistent with our mandate. Um, and uh, again, those filled in some critical gaps in terms of documentary records and evidence that are available to us uh, through the immigration uh, collections at Library and Archives Canada. LAC in its own right, you know, we, we had access facilitated through um, the immigration department. And uh, we have the Atlantic Public Services branch of LAC right here in the museum with us. Uh, and so we've had good friends helping us get access to the files we needed all the way along. Okay, but immigrants were already arriving in large numbers before Pier 21 existed. Uh, so what did the pier and its associated buildings uh, replace? This is a great question. It calls out a little bit how what we choose to remember um, really matters. Um, it replaced a much busier, uh, and one could make an argument about perhaps more historically significant, um, immigration site in Halifax, Pier 2. Um, loose numbers, maybe about three times as many people arrived at that site. Um, it, after the railway was completed uh, to Halifax uh, in the 1870s, um, Pier 2 was used for a, a series of different immigration sheds, starting with quite modest. Uh, and then after 1915, a purpose-built and quite impressive immigration shed was in place there. Um, but even as that shed was being built, the massive construction project here around Pier 21 was already imagined and underway. And an important aspect of that is that Pier 21 was really incidental to a much larger construction project, the, the South End Ocean Terminals. Um, the ocean terminals were built to address a kind of a national transportation problem. Uh, this deficit uh, in terms of the Atlantic ports for dealing quickly with large volumes of goods being produced in other parts of the country, getting them into the uh, Atlantic world by way of a Canadian port was proving to be difficult, and American ports uh, were often more competitive. And this was uh, thought for a number of reasons to be undesirable. Um, not least, you know, the, the profits for the transportation and the security and sort of the sovereignty for the movement of our national goods uh, was not being served 
uh, as it was thought in the best way uh, without having a, uh, a great foundation of commercial uh, port infrastructure in Halifax. And so Pier 21, as a passenger and immigrant uh, landing facility, was a very small part of a much larger commercial upgrade to the Port of Halifax, which involved, you know, filling a large section of the harbor and adding, you know, a, a really impressive set of um, piers to serve ocean liners, but then cargo piers and a, a, an enormous grain elevator and ultimately a railway hotel and a whole suite of other infrastructure. After it was built, of course, uh, as we know, it was in the wake of uh, some difficult years in the 1920s, which were particularly hard in Nova Scotia. And as you describe it, maritime rights advocates tried to address this problem in part through lobbying for new transportation infrastructure funded largely by the federal government. So to what extent was the building of Pier 21 perceived to be part of this agenda that was uh, embraced by the Maritimes Rights Movement? To focus on Pier 21, I, I think maybe not very much at all. Um, you know, I, I don't know that an immigration facility really uh, figured a, a great deal explicitly. However, um, passenger traffic uh, did play sort of a smaller part against the much larger intentional argument with regard to commercial and transportation infrastructure. Um, there's a, a little piece when sort of there's the Royal Commission about maritime rights where a representative from the Halifax Chamber of Commerce certainly uh, makes comment about, you know, the immigration facilities and the passenger facilities, but his comment culminates in saying, like, I don't think you could build anything that would be better than what they had at Pier 2, um, you know, along the way of talking about the importance of uh, the ocean terminals, again, of which Pier 21 is a part, uh, in terms of its commercial importance. So, um, you know, and, and there's the grain elevator here, of course, uh, which I, I think it would be correct to, to view that uh, as a, a fixture uh, in um, sort of part of a federal response to some of the grievances in the maritime rights movement. Um, but I, I think it's not incidental that it was also built during the year of a federal by-election in the area. Um, you know, so there's, there's a... a a response to the local movement, sure, but also I think some political opportunism in the construction. There's also uh, an interesting avenue uh, which I, I haven't fully unfolded, um, which is the interplay between the railway agreements and their responsibility for the site. I, I don't think it's much of a coincidence that you know, the rail, CN arrives at a, an agreement to be directly involved with a, a, a money stake in the business of immigration and immediately after concludes its ocean terminal and immigration reception facility here in the city. Um, still kind of fishing out those leads. Uh, you know, I, I look forward to more research in, in that area. Um, but there's, you know, there are a number of tendrils there besides simply the desire to complete an immigration facility, uh, you know, by the federal government. So the construction of Pier 21 is finally done by 1928. 
But then shortly after, you have the Great Depression and restrictive immigration policies. And so during uh, the 1930s, only 16,000 immigrants entered Canada annually. That is an average throughout the 1930s. And this compares to 126,000 immigrants per year in the 1920s. So how did work continue or not continue at Pier 21 during the 1930s? Well, there's a prior immigration officer, Bill Shaw, who um, describes the work of that period as really being to keep people out. You know, um, certainly uh, when we look at the early 1930s, for instance, uh, yes, there's this tremendous statistical drop-off, but also it's a drop-off disproportionately of ocean traffic because of the way that the uh, regulations uh, that were introduced in response to the Great Depression uh, prioritize immigration, and particularly immigration from the states. So especially early in the 1930s, like not only is it that severe drop-off you said from 126,000 to 16,000 average, um, but also it's a, it's a swing from ocean immigration to land boundary. So Pier 21, I mean, I would not be offended by a, a parody video of tumbleweeds blowing through here in the early 1930s. I think that would capture the spirit perfectly. Um, but that's a, you know, it, it's a really important uh, milestone because those restrictive policies uh, are what Canada takes into the years just before the Second World War and during the war just when humanitarian needs from Europe were most acute and thousands, particularly of German Jews, are appealing for admission, um, you know, looking for an avenue to come to the country and to find safety as uh, persecution escalates into visible violence and um, ultimately, you know, physical violence and, and killings. Uh, even before the mechanisms of the Holocaust, um, Canada's policy has reversed from, you know, the earlier Immigration Act being an assumption that you're admissible except against these prohibited categories to being an assumption that you're inadmissible except for these very narrow uh, qualifications to enter. Uh, and so this restrictiveness that we see has a perceptible uh, price. Uh, and complicity in in uh, the suffering and death of, of many people uh, who sought to immigrate during that period. Well, things did change very dramatically during the uh, Second World War. Can you describe the way in which Pier 21 uh, was used in the Second World War? One of the interesting things about Canada's immigration facilities, I think, is is that they are tools of the state that get used for numbers of things. Um, and so, you know, they get used, for example, to move, house, and relocate internees. They get uh, involved in the relocation of Japanese Canadians during the Second World War. Um, but during wartime, uh, here in Halifax, Pier 21's predecessor, Pier 2, was a military embarkation point for the Boer War in the First World War. Uh, many of us may have seen uh, Arthur Lismer's uh, artwork uh, from the Halifax waterfront of Pier 2, an immigration shed used for military activity. 
And Pier 21 followed this this model. Uh, I mentioned in describing the building, you know, it's railway tracks on one side and, and great big ships on the other. Uh, and whether you've got passengers coming off or soldiers embarking, the infrastructure works well in, in either direction. And so the military, you know, uh, looked to Halifax to be that, um, as the phrase went for more time, the, the anonymous East Coast port, uh, its principal embarkation point for uh, Canada's war effort uh, into the European theater. But the war effort was complicated, you know. Um, we had, of course, the military use, and, and we think of soldiers going out and, and coming back, both um, healthy soldiers returning, but also the wounded. Um, but then we also have one of Canada's interesting contributions to the war, the Commonwealth Air Training Plan, where soldiers from allied countries came to Canada to learn to fly or to be ground crew. Uh, and Pier 21 was their embarkation point. So we have many thousands of Allied soldiers arriving here uh, to be processed in land to do that training and then to go out to fight. We also have arriving enemy military members, uh, enemy prisoners of war, uh, about 34,000 of them during the war, arriving principally through here, Pier 21, um, to go to the various uh, internment camps operating in the country during the, the wartime. Mixed in with that movement, we have uh, a confusing and surprising number of civilian internees uh, who were uh, initially arriving without Canada's full knowledge that that would be the case uh, and had to be sort of uh, separated out uh, from the military members and, uh, you know, made clear that their status was, you know, rather more as, as uh, protected civilians and ultimately sort of refugees um, rather than enemy prisoners. In addition to all this, you have civilian traffic. Uh, children and adults evacuated for safety during the war. A very small number of refugees arriving during the war. Uh, merchant mariners uh, who were you know, crews from all over the world, um, simply to disembark required some immigration handling, but also some were liable to be detained if they were breaching terms of contracts and so on. Uh, and some of that detention happened here. Indeed, there was a, a point early in the war where Pier 21's detention facilities were completely, completely full with merchant mariners, uh, and they had to seek um, some cooperation in the use of other facilities because they simply couldn't sustain doing that detention. We also had during and then predominantly after the war uh, the arrival of military dependents. Um, the, the war brides and children, uh, you know, uh, women who met Canadian military members on deployment during the war and, and married and chose to come to Canada. Uh, they started arriving uh, early in the war. Um, the military took over responsibility for that in 1942. And from then, you know, to the peak in 1946 and a little bit after, uh, you know, you had tens of thousands of war brides uh, as well as, well, 44,000 brides and 21,000 kids, roughly, uh, arriving uh, at the site. Uh, and then there was also uh, an interesting mixture of valuable cargoes that arrived here. 
um, European countries evacuating securities and gold and, and cultural treasures to Canada for safekeeping during the war. So while we certainly think of military embarkation first, man, there was a lot of other things happening. <laughs> Pier 21's busiest days as the immigration shed came just after the Second World War, especially with the arrival in Canada of refugees and displaced persons. Can you expand a little on this movement? Yeah, this was when Pier 21 was the, the busiest ocean arrival point in Canada, and, and it was the busiest point in Pier 21's career as an immigration shed, these uh, few years just after the Second World War. But um, as much as we remember sort of Canada being, you know, a country that, that welcomed these refugees, and, and it is true that, that, you know, this was a large movement of, of people, um, in 1946, there was an opinion poll, and you know, 37% of Canadians supported the arrival of North European immigrants. An uh, overwhelming majority opposed uh, immigration from other parts of Europe, let alone the arrival of refugees or displaced persons. And so we kind of have to think about what broke the ice. And there are a few factors, but there's a, an interesting movement in 1946-47 of um, Polish veterans, veterans with uh, the Polish Second Corps. Um, and about 4,500 of these uh, Polish veterans are admitted to Canada uh, to take labor contracts. And it was a very very cautious and tentative movement. They were given labor contracts, but they weren't viewed as immigrants until their contract was complete. Uh, they didn't win the right to be considered landed uh, until they'd fulfilled their labor obligation. And this sort of laid the, uh, the groundwork for how really many of our uh, refugees were accepted after the war. Um, they came, you know, to pull sugar beets or to do labor contracts. And so as much as we remember sort of the humanitarian aspect of it, there's also this uh, important enduring labor uh, aspect where employers sought a desirable worker and identified them. And so you have these sort of bulk labor contracts um, that made this movement politically and publicly acceptable and economically feasible. And it sort of troubles our storytelling a little bit uh, in terms of the, the uh, post-war refugee arrival, but it's really important to acknowledge that, uh, that tie of work and the role of employers in making that uh, policy possible. Well, between 1946 and 1955, there's something like a million immigrants came to Canada and many would have gone through Pier 21. Uh, but uh, this began to change in the 1960s, the numbers, uh, and Pier 21 went into decline. Why did it go into this kind of decline and then finally close down in 1971? Well, uh, even in the 1950s, there were days where the immigration staff would, from here would hop on over to the airfield at Shearwater to process an arriving airplane. And of course, through the 50s and 60s, the prevalence of air travel exploded. Um, you know, Halifax's airport opened. And with that, 
uh, came, you know, not only the uh, the technological impact, the shift from ocean travel to the much faster and more convenient mode of air travel, but also um, procedural changes for immigration. Uh, so this is where you started getting, you know, the idea of uh, a single inspection line where a single agent would do that primary check for both immigration and customs. Um, they were making a lot of steps to sort of streamline the processing in response to this um, technological change and the rapid travel that was possible with the advent of widespread commercial air. And honestly, by 1970-71, you know, ocean traffic into the port of Halifax is, is negligible. Um, you know, there's a few thousand people arriving uh, and the traffic is so small that they just decide to revert to um, shipboard processing. And if they need, for some reason, for someone to stay for a follow-up check, check or uh, further examination, um, they go to uh, the system of using hotels or, if necessary, to, to borrow space in, in a, a jail uh, to secure someone who might be uh, thought to be need to be held. Um, and that was thought to be adequate because the, the numbers for ocean immigration were just gone. Well, Steve, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. My guest today was Steve Schwinghammer. He is the co-author, along with Jan Raska, of Pier 21, A History, published by the University of Ottawa Press in 2020 as part of the Press's Mercury series. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca where you can become a subscribing member and help support this podcast series. If you like what you've heard, let your friends know by forwarding this podcast through the social media of your choice. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society, and we want to thank the Hudson's Bay Company History Foundation, the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University, and a consortium of Canadian scholarly book publishers that includes the University of Toronto Press, UBC Press, and the University of Ottawa Press. My name is Greg Marshallton. This interview was recorded on April 1st, 2021, during the pandemic. It was produced by Jessica Schmidt.